if you can't seek the truth, then science is totally corrupt. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined as usual by Elon Martin Hello. and Adam Daniels. Today, we are pleased to have joining us J.D. Heltigan. J.D., I first discovered you on Twitter. I actually have, um, so th through my Substack, I've got a little community of Substack writers and readers that we um, we get together on Slack. And so that's how I found out about you is one of our readers had said, oh, you got to check out check out this guy's page. So I, I, I followed you and then, um, and then found your Substack, And then of course, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you reviewed political ponderology. So I saw that and, uh, that's what kind of put me in touch with you. I want, to, but, uh, I want to know like what it is, what it is you do, what your research focus is. Cause I know that you're listed on LinkedIn, I believe as an independent scientist. So I guess you're, are you, are you not associated with any universities currently? Um, like what do you do and how did you get into your particular field of interest? So, yeah, that's correct. Um, a long story in academia for me, I, um, I was a developmental psychologist. I did my PhD at the university of Miami in Florida. Um, and I was originally interested in um, attachment theory, so early kind of environmental influences on on outcomes like behavior and cognition. I had worked prior to that in residential a residential facility for kids who were sexual offenders. So prior to doing my PhD, I completed you know undergrad undergrad scholarship in in psychology and criminal justice. Then I did a at the time sort of a um, novel masters of arts and forensic psych right around the time when silence of the lambs was sort of you know ascendant and and big in the public consciousness and it was one of the first two research-based forensic psych programs in the wake of that this was at castleton state university in vermont it's no longer a program but it, it was a research-based program in forensic psych we did profiling um, you know, courses in research methodology, but it, it, it was an interesting two years. Then I did the residential experience that I just mentioned. So I kind of applied that work, kid, work with kids who had the, the population that I dealt with were kids who had sexual disturbances, so sexual reactivity and conduct issues. After that, my, my ultimate goal was to always go into academia. So I did my PhD at the University of Miami in developmental psych. Um, subsequently did a number of postdocs all over the place, ended up um, where I was most recently affiliated with the university in Toronto um, in their psychiatry department. I'm no longer with them just simply because my contract ended and given the state of academia right now, um, it's, it's someone with my sort of views is not really welcome there. Um, I, I didn't expect for my contract to be renewed through the medical research hospital that I was part of, um, and it wasn't. So now I'm kind of an independent scientist, but still on the periphery of academia. Uh, I serve in several, you know, editorial roles and sort of still I'm in a number of consortiums that are related to academia and still ultimately ideally hope to get back into an academic setting but it's just so difficult right now with the current political climate and the way academia has been totally um, deranged as far as you know empirical truth. So I'm hopeful for that, but at the same time, I'm still finishing a number of projects and so forth and so on and trying to really push back. Uh, Harrison, you mentioned you found me on Twitter. That's, that's partly wise, and I'm trying to really um, you know, flush my research program out onto Twitter and Substack to kind of really continue to build it. Um, um, you know, you can just cut off work in academia and then and just end. So that's kind of the trajectory in a nutshell. Um, and right now I'm sort of in this interstitial space, I'd like to call it, of, you know, applying. I have a lawsuit that was launched with regards to some diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. And I'm still, you know, obviously collaborating with several academics who are you know still in academia they're just anonymous on twitter for obvious reasons so yeah. um that's that's the that's kind of the you know history in a nutshell really mm -hmm. well 
maybe you could talk about what you, what you mentioned about the the academic climate or the you know the climate in in academia in general and well maybe in particular in psychology so what has been your impression of when you got the, the difference from when you got into the field to now like what has what has changed and how have you noticed it change and and was there a moment when was there a, was it like a a frog boiling where it just happened gradually or was it was there a moment in time where it seemed like it came out of nowhere i'm interested in the, kind of like an insider's view on how this was like uh, an insider's perception yeah, on how this all played yeah. out I, I've reflected on that myself quite a bit. Now, I went into when I when I for, when I really went into research academia when it's when I started my PhD at the University of Miami in Florida, and I was always interested in an attachment developmental psych. So that in and of itself is tracking more. You know, you don't get a lot of masculinity in people who are interested in emotion and babies and infants and moms and, and dads. So it kind of made sense to me at the time, but as time went on and I got more involved in attachment theory and my work began to move into more evolutionary psychopathology and biology and genetics, it became clear that there was an issue going on with regards to, you know, sort of the, the dichotomy between you know, lived experience versus universal truths that are grounded in empirical reality and, and biological principles. And the irony of it all is that attachment theory, formal attachment theory, as espoused by John Bowlby, is rooted in evolution. It's rooted in, you know, um, ethology, which is sort of the study of comparative animal species. So it struck me as a little odd kind of you know, thinking about that, there's different research traditions that look at attachment. One is a social personality tradition, uh, which is a little bit more, you could probably say, not not as grounded in the evolutionary biology end of it. It's like self-report, romantic questionnaires, and so forth. It's still grounded in theory, but it's it's a different class of researchers more more broadly. So as, as my work moved on, then especially as my methodology skills sort of um, evolved, I got more into psychopathology. So the study of, of mental illness and psychiatric symptoms, which if you think about attachment, one of the key features of attachment has always been how do we look at early experiences as contributing to later mental disturbance or, or adaptation is like as, as we like to say. So it makes sense, sort of linearly speaking, my, my trajectory. But once I got into psychopathology, this is sort of more around 2012, 13, 14, you started to see where things were going off the rails. And you asked, well, that, was there a moment, a threshold point where I started to recognize things were going off the rails? And I, I really would have to say back in 2013, 2014, when I was doing my last postdoc at the University of Ottawa in Canada, which I basically went there just to stay in academia uh, simply because, you know, I couldn't get a job. I wanted to stay in the research setting. Um, and that was the one opportunity that presented itself. And I'm a hockey player, so I'm, I'm not as well. Um, it was really right around the time that, that Trump as a political figure became ascendant. And I remember sitting in my apartment in Ottawa doing my research, watching CNN. You know, I'm from America, so, you know, it made sense. That's the news that I was following and stuff. And it was just remarkable to me to see what I was experiencing in the classroom. And, and Ottawa is a very liberal sort of, you know, Canadian city. So it was like the juxtaposition was completely in, incredible to me. But it really was a larger a reflection of what was happening in the West more generally, um, just more extreme in, in, in Ottawa. And then subsequent to Trump's election, things just went bonkers in academia. And then, of course, you had the George Floyd uh, incident and reaction, which was basically the great awakening. And it's just destroyed and degraded everything that has to do with anything you know, social science in general was always considered a soft science. It was a little bit more or less rigorous, you know, quantitatively. 
But after that, it just got way off the rails, heavily disproportionate female dominated, which, you know, I'll be accused of being a sexist, but I'm not. It's just the fact of the matter is that's going to obviously have implications for the work that gets done. And it's it's been a big, huge feature of a lot of the work that I've been trying to do. I mean, part of what we study in psychopathology is gender differences in, in symptom expression across disorders. Males tend to be more aggressive, externalizing. Females have the adolescent rise in depression and neuroticism. That's well-established empirical work. But denying that has had massive complicate, you know, massive complications for everything going on from gender ideology to today's, you know, today, you can see all of this reflected in today's SCOTUS ruling, which I've been tweeting about all day long. Um, and that's, that's kind of when I, that's the, the trajectory that I've noticed. And I mean, it's gone completely off the rails in terms of DEI, um, who can do research, you know, can you explore genetic race differences in constructs or for that matter of sex-based differences. And so if you can't seek the truth, then science is totally corrupted. Mm -hmm. hmm. Now, so you started in attachment theory and that led into a, a more of a, a focus on developmental psychopathology. So now you've already, you've already hinted at this. So part of, part of that approach is to look at sex differences, sex differences in the way that um, psychopathologies might express themselves, um, you know, between men and women, let's say. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how that, how your, your research and just your awareness of issues relating to psychopathology, how that specifically played in or plays into the things that you're seeing within academia and within the wider culture. So, so when you like when you when you watch the news, what or or you you watch stories, you watch uh, you know political commentators. How does the how does your knowledge of psychopathology play into the way that you see that? Like, what what do you see going on in the world with that through that lens? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, and, and I can speak broadly to that. I mean, I think for me, uh, particularly with, with the current political climate and the current climate in our cultural and, and civic institutions, it's it's a longhouse mentality. So you have a disproportionate um, prevalence of female-based thinking and reacting and the psychopathologies associated with that, with, with those sex-based differences. So, you know, it's well established that during adolescence, Females experience rises in depression and eroticism. But if you scale that to a society where that then becomes an issue in all of the institutions at an extremely disproportionate level, you're going to have those same symptoms manifest and, and impact the policies that come about. So all the censorship complex that we're living through and some of the emotional dysregulation on a macro level scale is really a consequence of that, a lack of, it's basically a lack of, of male systemization in positions of these institutions that generate civic and, and political decision-making or, or commentary. I mean, um, so especially with things like gender ideology, for example, we see extremely not only is the the anti-empiricism of the construct promulgated by mostly women it's also the, their their sense of compassion is leveraged to to facilitate and continue its its acceptance in the culture and so that's one area where you see that it's heavily disproportionately a female driven thing. And it has ramifications for, you know, what's happening to, to young adolescents who are going through these procedures or who are being told to think of themselves as having fluid genders. And it's impacting, you know, with some irony, 
more more specifically female adolescents for the very reason that they experience these rises in adolescence of depression and eroticism. So they seek affirmation in online spaces that then contribute to them thinking that they, they are a different gender, especially if they're more masculine female. So between gender ideology and the censorship complex uh, from, you know, the, the recent stuff that Mike Schellenberger has tweeted about with the, the sort of, if you look across the West and you look at the political leaders that want to clamp down on hate speech or internet speech that's harmful, it's largely women that are doing this. And so the the sort of Jordan Peterson archetype of the devouring mother is, is accurate um, to a certain degree. I don't agree with Jordan Peterson on everything, but he, he's right. Um, and this is not an accusation or a condemnation of evolved female-based behaviors. It's just when you when you have such a disproportionate level of them in all of the institutions, this is a consequence. And once it spirals out of control, it then can be used for more nefarious purposes uh, politically to control, to to censor to, um, you know, to cancel and things like that. So that's kind of, I hope that's sort of yeah, a good well, answer I, to the question. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, wanted, um, just wanted to ask you along those lines. Uh, so if, if those traits are being weaponized among uh, women or exacerbated or uh, um, brought out and, and um, in such a negative societal way would you say that it, it is the um among the the male part of the population the guys in antifa the guys who are uh however that's presenting among the male part in in various radical left uh let's say institutions and in the media and 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 uh, social networks is it is it the uh whatever is strong or aggressive that that is intrinsic to a male that that has been pathologized or hystericized. How how do you see it among men? In, in other words, well, explain think... Justin Trudeau. Right? <laughs> Ex- That's fair. Explain Justin Trudeau. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Like a male in this uh, in this constant in in this context of female typical. Um, you know, psychology, which, which you relate to, like in one of your articles, you, you uh, talk about, uh, um, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's brother. What's his, yeah, but the, the systematization versus empathization and how it may be, Simon like, Baron Cohen. Yeah. yeah, Simon. And so how there's the, um, like there, there might be, um, the, the female and male typical, um, like traits and, but they're, they're basically like overlapping bell curves, right? So you'll have the female typical traits, but then of course you'll also get males that are within that, um, within that distribution. But then I I think what Alan's getting at is there's also, there's also, um, an expression of like the more male typical stuff that comes out in, let's say like a, a violent radical, um, who, who might be part of, a um, an ideology that is typically, or that's more geared towards, um, let's say like the, the, those female typical traits, but that then expresses itself in a more, um, like masculinely violent manner. Um, is that a good summary, Alon? Or yeah, or, or, in other, or in other ways. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, uh, the, the prototype case that you're talking about is like maybe Antifa where there's more of a, um, a male aggression and that is weaponized, um, similar to what I've been discussing that's sort of the female based weaponization of of the typical female profile of engulfment and and sort of over intrusiveness but I, I think there's an important point to be made here that these aren't there are fuzzy boundaries at some level and I mean in the case of antifa I think what what unites something like antifa with something like the more feminine um, stuff that I've been speaking about in the censorship complex is that both are sort of characterized by a heightened state of emotional dysregulation at the extreme. So there's just sort of this neurotic 
compulsive aspect of that of both of them mm-hmm. that seeks to control and they're just the expression is just different in different ways so in, in the case of antifa where you have males who are just violent they're still highly you know emotionally dysregulated <clears throat> uh neurotic um you know in other words in both cases there's there's some there's some underlying trait psychopathology that is common to both mm-hmm. um, that gets expressed in different ways. And a lot of my work has been, you know, a lot of my work that's more methodologically based has been looking at what's called a general factor of psych- uh, psychopathology. So, you know, how do all of the symptoms that we typically think of, of, of mental and personality disturbance load onto one common factor of of what you would call mental illness and there's different ways you know you can use factor analysis to to come at that in different ways but one of the interesting novel i guess aspects of my work i've been always interested in what i've considered sort of an emotional dysregulation factor which is trying to see if there's sort of a unique factor that has high loadings of symptoms that deal with cluster B or internalizing anxiety, neuroticism. And I think if you, if you, you know, in, a, in some, in some study where I had personality and psychopathology measures with all of those at a large enough sample, and I modeled that statistically, and then we had say, you know, like whether or not someone was an Antifa member or whether someone was a, a member of, you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, um, you know, it was like a hardcore Trudeau supporter, woke person. You would see that commonality amongst them. The difference would be, of course, in just the sex-based differences and how they demonstrate that that sort of psychopathology. Um, right. But yeah, there's there's no there, there's no fuzzy boundaries per se. Um, What's been demonized and what's absent is sort of the the notion of adaptive masculinity. Um, you might say that Antifa is toxic masculinity, I guess, but it's even more than that. It's like more deranged masculinity than it is even toxic. I mean, um, some of what's considered toxic masculinity is just basic masculinity. There's, there's been a complete perversion of that term as well. Um you know, so I guess that's kind of how I would look at that. It's it's a more it's a more of a complex, nuanced question about how we would look at those different groups and and you know you have how they express their their psychopathology, but that's sort of the more the the most sort of broad answer I can give without getting too technical or or just speculating sort of wildly. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think of the recent paper on left-wing authoritarianism where they did, um, I'm guessing you've read it, um, it was all over Twitter um, several weeks ago, and so they, they did two studies and through through their analysis and kind of eliminating, um, you know, conf- what is it, like confounding factors like the, like the impact of, of gender or socioeconomic status they kind of narrowed in on the strongest correlation with left-wing authoritarianism was actually psychopathy. And so the, the features of left-wing authoritarianism, uh, I'll forget them off the top of my head, but one was, one was basically um, some form, I can't remember the terminology that they use, but some form of censorship and, um, and, oh, yeah, well, the, the the three factors, the three <laughs> three things are, are slipping my mind, but the censorship was one of them. So I was wondering how, it, how what you thought about that and how how that may or may not fit in with um, the the kind of idea of that kind of runaway empathy being a uh, a motivating factor for like support for censorship, or if they're two separate ideas or. Yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with that paper. And I think, you know, one of the things that the most important distinguishing factor between left-wing authoritarianism and right-wing authoritarianism, in my view, is is the distinction between vulnerable narcissism and grandiose narcissism. And on the left, left-wing authoritarianism is much more characterized by a vulnerable narcissism. And that vulnerable narcissism is much more 
to, 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 to my knowledge, going to track with the core features of Cleckley's and basically Hare's psychopathy, which is sort of that emotional, that, that lack of emotional connection with the people they 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 take advantage of. In the context of that, you can look like compare Trudeau, for example, with Trump. Trudeau is a vulnerable narcissist for sure. Trump is a grandiose narcissist. But the person that I would be more concerned about in terms of imposing fastest rule would be Trudeau for sure. I mean, because there's a there's sort of a lying and a deceitfulness and a cunning and a conning that is more covert than than even Trump. I mean, Trump outright will lie, but it's almost done in a way that he knows people will just recognize. There's no real attempt to to kind of um, give it a patina of moralization or or righteousness that that is that is supposed to make it acceptable. You know, he's just ruthless and sort of dirty in his ways. He's sort of a locker room narcissist, um, but. In terms of left-wing authoritarianism, it's much more of cloaked in moralism, cloaked in this sort of "we're doing this for your own good." When in reality, they don't give they they don't don't care about you. They they don't have any effective connection with you. That's a complete moralization. So you can have, you basically you have both in both cases, you have narcissists that lie. But it's really only the one of them that that cloaks it with this grant, this this sort of moralization and empathy, and we care. That is a complete lie, and so I see that as tracking much more in line with Beckley's notion of psychopathy than than someone like Trump, who's just more antisocial than anything else. Um, and that's the difference. And that's really what people don't understand about psychopathy is that they often confuse it with antisocial personality disorder. Yeah. And that's part of it. The rule breaking, the the sort of disregard for laws. But the core feature of psychopathy, at least as collectively has defined it, and, and really with Harris PCL is, is that effectiveness, manipulativeness deceitfulness uh conning that's really the core of it mm -hmm. well that that so brings... they, they, they lie they, they 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 lie with impunity and they lie and saturate that with moralization and yeah. and and almost in a way it's like a it's a double dip right they're lying but they're saying the lying is is morally justified that well, several times in our conversation so far, I, I've been thinking of a couple things from Ponderology by Lobachevsky. And one of the, so I guess two things. So one thing he said, this, something earlier, something you said earlier reminded me of this. He often talks about one type of psychopathology opening the door to a second type. And you hinted at a certain idea earlier about this, um, this kind of trait empathization that kind of goes off the rails um, opening the door for something much more nefarious. And, and you can see this, well, so this ties into the second thing, which he talked about, <clears throat> this was in the context of ponderogenic groups. So these will be movements or political parties or any type of like of human group that becomes increasingly pathologized, that means, or ponderized. So uh, a greater and greater number of people with personality problems or different types of psychopathologies end up populating this group and the normal individuals get progressively either kicked out or they leave on their own. So you get this increasing saturation. Uh, yeah. And saturation. And one of the things he's said about movements of these sorts, because he was talking about this basically in the context of like the Bolsheviks and the, the communist parties in, in the early 1900s, you know, leading up to primarily the, 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 the Russian revolution. And the point he made about this is that pretty much the, the way this happens, he didn't use the phrase, but it's, it was through left-wing authoritarianism. It was through a social movement that he called it has like a great kind of hu humanistic and, and creative potential. So it's, it's this, it's a movement that is concerned with social justice, with, um, with features that would appeal to the kind of compassionate side of, of humanity, the people that, um, that care about fairness and, 
and and social justice or 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 people being harmed in some way that's kind of the motivating factor and so you get this and because it's it's a large motivating factor of course because it's a, it's a basic human trait um you know that that of, of course there's not everyone is is as compassionate as others but it's it's still a basic human trait um and, and so it's that trait that becomes weaponized um, that trait in itself can be a problem if it's if there's too much of it. You get kind of like the law of law the law of large numbers that you're talking about, where you have a, a, a huge concentration of this. But then that in itself, this relates back to the first idea, is kind of the problem that opens the door for the more Machiavellian, nefarious um, kind of um, snake in snakes in suits, wolf, wolves in sheep clothing, the type of people that these, this psychopathic personality that will just take that and run with it because they know they can get support. They know they can get the, the, or they know they have to, the only way they can get support is to, to wrap themselves in the cloak of something that a large percentage of the population will get behind. And what better to, what better way to do that than something that is, um, you know, founded in, the, the greater good and compassion and, and, um, some, some great and noble, um, social movement. Um, well, do you have any thoughts on that or does that, does that, uh, yeah, does that prompt anything in your mind? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he, he talks about in his book, the essential psychopath and the, and the character path. And mm-hmm. if you think about left-wing authoritarianism and left-wing, um, political, radical progressivism today it's really a two-tiered setup you have basically one or two regime controllers essential psychopaths at the top who then you know leverage the guilt and, and the empathy of largely female you know ground troops i mean activists and so that's part of the deal is they they know they can weaponize that i mean and and in his book, Political Pornology, um, Labuszewski, he indicates that, you know, church groups are, are another one where they can become totally infiltrated because of that compassion and that social justice mindset. They can become corrupted from within. And you're seeing that play out even now with the sort of the gender ideology is taking over some of the more Protestant faiths and religion is becoming corrupted for ve- that very reason. Yeah. Catholicism. Um, so too. I, I mean, yeah, Catholicism too, a hundred percent. I mean, there's even, you know, the, the current Pope has become so, and so that's one of the things that struck me about his book. He nailed that two tier, two tier setup quite well. So it's, it's, it's one of the things that really kind of, um, I see is, distinct about the psychopathology of the left is the right. You can just get basically masculinity and scale that. And you have, you know, these, these crazy people that will want to march and tear everything down and dominate or whatever. But on the left, it's much more of a two tiered setup where, you know, a few people who are essential psychopaths are basically brainwashing otherwise good, good hearted people. But given their their predispositions to think or feel a certain way, they're they're led astray and they're completely brainwashed cults. I mean, one of the, the biggest things about the gender identity stuff is that it's been described as a cult, the pronouns. And it, it really is. It, it's a cult that that leverages that sort of uh, their, their sense of compassion becomes completely perverted and distorted. And they're they're not able to see that affirmation run off the rails is is harmful right it's just about the individual being affirmed in the moment you're this this gender that gender feel good feel great at scale that becomes devastating when these kids you know start to think that they can alter their bodies for example um so that, that it sort of weaponizes evolved differences in in ways males and females think that it, that's distinct from a more uh, right wing sort of just leverages antisocial impulses and 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 domination. Um, so that's that's one of the things about um, you know Labuschagne's book that, that really intrigued me is he even said even coming out of a state of uh, 
polarology or, or polarogic processes that have been prevalent, you have to be careful that you don't return to uh, fundamentalism in religious places or otherwise that 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 that, that become you know become corrupted themselves. And and so you know what he was suggesting was a much more informed way of this problem. Um, you know, he was he didn't have the the upshot of being a research scholar. He was more of a, a cultural psychologist who was noting broad patterns and he had a unique experience of his own. Um, but that that's the 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 appeal of his work to me is that he saw this at a scale that a, a more of a a researcher who's on the ground and immersed in the literature and the methodology wouldn't be able to see at a political level. You know, most developmental psychologists, for example, are not. You know, we weren't studying left wing authoritarianism. That that was the province of personality and social psychologists. But now you can start to see how all of this plays together. Um, how all of these sort of archetypes fit together and how they all can lead to essentially what becomes a communist collectivist neo-Marxist movement that that seeks to, you know, uh, create this this delusional radical equality that that is inconsistent with human nature. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, I want to come back to the... P factor, I believe it's called. The, so the, I want to get in, maybe maybe, uh, maybe we shouldn't get too far into the weeds, but I, I wanted to, I want I want to get just I just want to get into this a bit more. I know that uh, a week or so ago you posted a a new uh, an article that you didn't write, but but with reference to some of the articles that you've written in the past, kind of on this tough this topic. And so this was by some other researchers positing again this P factor, this psychopathological factor, this kind of one overarching. Um, construct um for which all other types of psycho uh, of psychopathology are kind of factors and so i i think they're, they're i i didn't read the whole paper but i think they were go going into this idea of um i can't remember the guy's name but it was the, the free energy principle right um yeah yeah um can't remember the guy but th their idea was that was to to relate all these forms of psychopathology to this basically Something that I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about in different contexts, it's this kind of the reduction of uncertainty. And so when that seemed to be the general concept concept that they were theorizing to, that, that everything could kind of fit under. And so when you so psychopathology would be kind of like um, an early adaptation to a set of disadvantageous like circumstances that would be adaptive in the moment, but then would be become um, maladaptive in the future. That's at least what I got from reading the first couple pages. Um, I'm wondering what's the, what do you see as the theoretical basis for this, this P factor? Um, or, or, and what did you think about this paper? Did it, did it mesh with your research or, um, or your theory? Or? Well, yeah, I think, I, I think I recollect what the paper you're talking about had to do with canalization and sort of how, yeah. Um, if if you have a pattern of behavior that's repeated over time, it becomes harder to then you know be more plastic or more adaptable. So it's, it's really it draws on it really draws on um, the developmental biologist uh, Waddington and his developmental pathways of canalization and, and genetic development. Um, there's many. I mean, the P factor itself is just a statistical representation of how symptoms that we measure cohere statistically. So it's just a statistical representation of the symptoms. Now you can interpret that conceptually in different ways. And in that particular case, the authors were taking uh, a, a novel approach to thinking about it from, like you said, the free energy perspective. I didn't read the papers in depth, but I got a gist of a sense of of what they were saying. Um, I, I look at it from an evolutionary perspective. I've written some work uh, papers with Marco Delgaducci, a colleague of mine, looking at how, you know, basically psychopathology is an adaptation over, you know, to, to, a, to a circumstance or to a life history strategy. Um, and if it becomes ingrained or becomes too... Uh, too unamenable to, to change, then it becomes particularly problematic. Um, so in the case of, of many psychopathologies, 
they can be interpreted in terms of adaptive behavior in a given context. It's when they're taken out of context that they become maladaptive. Um, so I guess th there are different ways to interpret the P factor. I mean, there's many people who say that the P factor in terms of its actual statistical representation is, you know, fundamentally got, got issues with it. Um, and there's this methodological debate about how best to measure it. Um, so it's it's not a resolved issue by any means, but I think as a, as a as a general statement, we could say there is evidence strongly that there is a a single factor of psychopathology or maybe two that have, have roots in you know that have strong genetic roots, depending on how much you load on on that factor. Um, you know, some aspects of the factor, some some symptoms such as antisocial behavior or um, others will be less genetically, you know, mediated than others. But in general, when you look at the factor itself, th there will be a strong genetic component to it. Um, interestingly enough, in the, in the psychopathology factor, typically psych psychopathy is distinguished from that. So Psychopathy is not typically considered in the DSM or or the ICD-10. I don't believe it's a separate construct that is sort of more of a research-based construct. It, it has strong research um, lineage behind it, and it's well-respected gold standard measure. For example, Hairs PCL, but it, it's not. You don't typically <clears throat> index the P factor with any measures of the PCL. It's all more psychopathology in terms of antisocial behavior. You might have um, what we consider or what we call the Achenbach child behavior checklist that has measures of, you know, basic antisocial behavior. But typically in a, in a P factor setup, you won't have any indicators or symptoms that come directly from something like, you know, hairs, psychopathy checklist. So would there you is say some that's nuance a there. Would you say that's a failing of uh, of that? Um, I think researchers are now beginning to move beyond that. So personality measures are being incorporated into these P factors. So, you know, typically the P factor started out as just common clinical psychopathology, and then researchers have been building in personality psychopathology, so access to stuff, and I think. It really is an investigator-determined thing. So if I had measures of psychopathology, I could model that and call it a P-factor. Um, but I'm sure there's there's measures now that deal with callous unemotional traits that are self-report measures that, that get pulled into some of that work. I mean, mm -hmm. the work has expanded greatly. Um, but and, and there might even be a paper that's published where the psychopathology factor does include something from the PCL. I don't know. But um, it's continuing to emerge and evolve. So what initially started out as the P factor definitely was a limitation. But I think by now we started to realize that, you know, any form of psychopathology, whether it's personality or common clinical, it's going to load at some higher abstract level on one, one construct, mm -hmm. one because, factor, more or less. Yeah, because when we think of, um, where when most people think of mental illness, they're thinking of, um, like, like I say, a, a person with a basic emotional nature, and that emotional nature kind of goes off the rails in some way, which we which we call, let's say, like anxiety or depression. It seems to be you have this emotional structure, and that structure there's turbulence within that structure. When you look at something like psychopathy, though, that's that doesn't really fit into that conception of mental illness because it's not it, it's a it's an emotional disorder by subtraction, not by like shaking things up. It's well, there's that that emotional component that becomes turbulent in a in what we call mental illness. Well, that's just not there. It's a it's a cold heartedness. It's a, a kind of a lack of emotion that characterizes psychopathy, and 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 there's something similar going on with um, with um, like some like autistic spectrum disorders and maybe schizoid personality where there's this lack of affect, this detachment from the world. So it seems to me that that would be, that might be a kind of like higher level division within the factor where it's like you have the more unemotional um, 
expressions and then the more emotional expressions. And of course, because most, most people are somewhere on that bell curve of having some basic emotions, you're going to have this, this kind of small minority that are, are the kind of the ones that an ordinary person would categorize, categorize as just completely unemotional because that nothing moves them. They don't, they don't feel that basic, uh, they don't have that basic sense of humanity that that we perceive in each other and and, and in ourselves. Um, what, what do you think about that? Will, does that kind of mesh with, yeah, with how no, you think I about mean, it? I, yeah, absolutely. Most most common clinical psychopathology is characterized by some sort of emotional disturbance. Um, the exception that you mentioned maybe was would be autism, and you brought up schizophrenia. There's a well known model of of autism and schizophrenia that they're just opposite ends of the same spectrum. So. The diametrical model of autism and schizophrenia, which was proposed by Bernard Crespi, um, it, it sees those basically, uh, you know, it just sees them as two ends of the same dimension. Um, and so, you know, once you bring together all of those disorders, or they're not really disorders in nature, everything is mostly distributed dimensionally, continuously on a bell curve, you know. The disorders in, in mental health are not you have it or you don't. It's not taxonic like it is in, say, cancer or medicine where you have a cancer cell or you don't. Um, so once you start to look at how these symptoms cohere on these different dimensions and factors, then you can start to begin to understand um, not just the common clinical stuff that you mentioned where it is emotional dysregulation, but you have um, you know, a much more of a colder uh, autistic presentation that's extreme. Um, which is psychopathy. And psychopathy is much more, it's the combination of lack of affect with sort of that sort of callousness and and cruelty. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you can see just based on this brief discussion, there's, there's a lot of work that still remains to be done to sort of chart exactly how things fit together. But in terms of left wing authoritarianism, what you see at the top, in my view, is the more essential psychopath who then leverages that sort of emotional dysregulation and activist mentality of, of high neuroticism and, and empathy that just totally unspools to sort of uh, lend credibility to whatever social justice or ponderogic process they're trying to shove down the throat of. Uh, of, a, of a nation state or what have you. Uh, so that's kind of how I see it, you know, fitting more or less. Yeah, there's a, I think that's they, a good they point. They leverage the essential psychopath who who is totally affect-less. They still have cognitive empathy in the sense of they can understand the motivations of others. It's that, that more effective empathy that they lack. And so... They, they then leverage the effective empathy of the people that they just have mind control because they know they can they can manipulate them. And so that's how it plays out, sort of practically speaking. Now, I'm sort of just sort of shooting from the cuff here in terms of talking about how these detailed psychiatric symptoms might play out at the political level. But I think the more extreme things play out, in the current milieu, the more you're able to clearly see this is accurate. And I think that's one of the, the brilliant aspects of, of Labuszewski's work was he saw this at sort of a, a macro level scale that nobody was really paying attention to because of, of the environment that he grew up in. And that's why you hear a lot of these people that come from other countries to the U.S. and even Canada, they say if they came from a communist country, they, they know what's going on is not good. Because they were in it. They, they know this, what's happening is not good. They escape that stuff, but they can see it playing out here, which we don't have the advantage of because we grew up in sort of, we, we didn't grow up in that environment where we could see this perversion playing out. But the more extreme it gets now, especially with the radical left going off the rails with gender and the DEI stuff, the more clearly this comes into view. And the more mm. clearly you can see that what he was getting at was was totally accurate. Yep, totally agree. Elon, did you have and, a... And the well, thing, too, is... Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to... One of the things he mentioned in the book is that, you know, 
him and his colleagues knew, even within the institutions, they were being fed just complete, ridiculous, anti-empirical stupidity. And, you you know, you had to leave. And that's what a lot of academics, many are, are now feeling here. They're either anonymous on Twitter. They got out. They left. They got canceled. They know what's happening. It's just it's just it's basically, frankly, delusional. And so that's exactly what what Labozweski was was basically saying that he and his colleagues felt when they were being told this just mindless stupidity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why when I when I was writing the introduction to the to the new edition, that um, that section where he's describing one of those, that final year of, of schooling when they had the, the, the indoctrination professor come in, I just thought that was the, the, that had so much more meaning and, and relevance than when I first read it like 15 years ago, seeing what's happened. Well, from my perspective, seeing the, or how do I put it? Like what was going on in academia that really became clear to me in like the past five years. Well, I think to, to most people, it wasn't just, you know, I'm sure a ton of academics have been seeing it like you have for like a longer period of time, let's say since 2012 or even before that, they might have been experiencing certain things. But um, but nowadays you can you can see it. Every, you don't have to be on the inside to see what's going on. No. And, yeah. and so you, you see that, yeah, this just total, the delusional nature of it. How did Lobachevsky put it? It was like the, um, like he was for the next hour and a half, he would spew like pseudoscientific nonsense and we would just be yeah. like shaking our heads, but then, but they couldn't laugh because they'd get called out for, for laughing. And so they, they well, realized yeah, and, and that, that, yeah. the, the, the the penalty for them was severe. I mean, death, uh, imprisonment. I mean, so again, we didn't, we didn't have to deal with that. Certainly, you know, in contemporary times in, in the West, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't have that fear. Um, but now, you know, that it's definitely becoming a much more realistic fear with the censorship complex, the cancellations happening in academia and the, the characteristics of some of these attacks for even challenging DEI have have a semblance of uh, familiarity with some of the more extreme rhetoric. And, and so you let that slip out of hand and you end up real quickly into a bad spot. And so it's not hyperbole to sort of be sounding the alarm when when we're seeing what's happening. Yeah. Uh, especially yeah, with sure. the perversion of, of gender. I mean, that's really where it's sort of gone off the rails. But even even within that, like even prior to that, there was a, um, a recalcitrance to, um, you know, the blank slate. You couldn't study genetics or biology because what that reveals is that, you know, human nature is really at the core of survival of the fittest. And that's hard for people to accept. So the elites, the psychopathology of the elites is basically in, in a way, in my view, it's weaker people genetically and mentally who have to create artificial environments to basically exist and be competitive. And so, you know, they, they take it off the rails and that's what it becomes. That's, that's, but, but, but instead of just having a society where you allow everyone a, an equal opportunity, they, they want to force that, that sort of setup on the normal population. And as, you know, Labasweski points out, you you can't do that for long because it just doesn't work it doesn't work at the level of the population normal normal people as he puts it or what i would consider basically the normal population of, of genes is just going to realize this is insane and nature is always going to win out in the end that's basically the hard facts of life <laughs> All right. Well, JD, we've been, we've been going about an hour, so I think that was a, a perfect note to end on. What do you think? Any final thoughts or, uh, or final questions from you guys? No? JD? No, I mean, I, I, again, I want to thank you for, I, I think it was uh, Mike Schellenberger who first called my attention to the book, uh, you know, Lobos Wesley's book. And, okay. you know, I, I, I did review it, so I certainly want to call attention to that on, on, um, 
you know, on the show and, yep. and how that relates to some of the more detailed methodological, I guess you could call it academic work that's being done. But um, I know Mike Schellenberger just gave a talk at University of Austin, you know, the new school that, that Barry Weiss has, has sort of um, set up and he featured the book there. Um, so that's something to call folks' attention to. But um, it's it's a book worth reading. And, and this is a topic that's worth continued discussion, um, particularly as, you know, today's a great day to have this conversation because, you know, here in the U.S., of course, uh, we just had the, the Supreme Court decision that affirmative action has been, you know, nixed. And, and, and so you've seen that play out on Twitter, and that's relevant in many ways to what we've been discussing t- tonight. So um, I guess that would be my final um, Great. my final well, notes, as well as to calling your calling your listeners to to also, if they can, grab a hold of uh, Cleckley's original work, Mask of Sanity. And, um, you know, go from there, really try to read as much as they can on this literature. Yeah. Elon? Well, just real quick, I was glad you mentioned the uh, Supreme Court decision. You had a few great tweets on that subject today. And um, we should have you back. We should uh, we should flesh yeah, out would, some of love, these things. I would, absolutely. Um, I think it's a topic well worth discussing. And as I mentioned, you know, with the academic situation being the way it is, uh, I'm certainly trying to bring an academic perspective to to the public because I know the public doesn't trust academia, but at the same time, that's the tradition that I was trained in. And I understand why the public hates academics, but I want to kind of be a bridge the, as long as I can be. And, and as I mentioned, I'd ideally like to stay in academia. That might be a crazy thought, but the ability to do your work and to, to freely explore that and to write grants around that and, and to communicate that to the public is is a gift. And, um, you know, one of the worst parts about right now is that you, you can't do that. I mean, you can't do that because you're being censored or you're, you know, so um, definitely would, would welcome the opportunity to be back on at some point. Great. And uh, well, w- one thing that you, by, by doing that and by con- continuing to, um, you know, take that that truly academic standpoint, I think you're serving as a, a reminder of what the academy should be, or, you know, what it used to be and what it could be in the future. Because I think that despite all of its problems, it does, it, it does serve a purpose. Unfortunately, that purpose has been, you know, corrupted from within. And it's very hard to kind of get a grasp on it in this current climate. But I don't think people should, you know, to use a cliche, throw out the baby with the bathwater. There is, there's, a wealth of of important a wealth of importance that comes along with with uh, with science and knowledge and the the kind of the institution of of learning and of discovery and I think that um, guys like you are you know even if you're even if you're working independently are kind of keeping that torch alive so you know thank you for doing that and. Yeah, and I think one point, just as you were speaking, you know, I I don't mean to suggest that, you know, there there is some good that comes out of the compassionate mindset. So I'm all for looking at social factors that that could play into psychopathology. So it's not a matter of just focusing on, say, like deterministic biology or genes, even though that's something I'm very interested in. But in any model, I mean, you're taught the biopsychosocial model is standard of of how we think about understanding nature. And, you know, if biology wins out, if you have different determinants in the model, let's say you have a model and you want to look at, you know, um, heaven forbid sex differences and racism, and you, you throw in psychiatric history, you throw in genes, you throw in sex, you throw in uh, social roles, maybe because people think that it's social roles that condition females to be depressed. It's going to be biology that wins out, of course, but th- then you you look at something like race and aggression or race and IQ, it becomes much more dicey. But I think we're at a point now, if, if human beings have evolved enough to really accept th- the truth, then we can have these conversations with some sensitivity 
mm-hmm. but not lie about human nature. And that's really the key is not lying about human nature and not lying about human nature means you have to consider different uh, factors for outcomes uh, and, and think about how they play out. So great. And that maybe that can be a topic for our next, our next discussion sometime in the future, because I wanted to get into the biopsychosocial um, outlook on psychopathology in general. But Thanks again, JD. For our listeners and viewers, I'm going to, or we're going to include links to your um, to your pages in the description. So we'll have a link to your Twitter, um, a link to your Substack. Anywhere else that we should be directing people, or are those two good enough? That's the two. That's the two right now that would be the best for me um, is to to get the word out that way, and um, you know, from there, everybody else, you know, they they can find out additional information from there for sure. All right. Great. So thanks again, JD, and we'll talk to you again soon.